0: This SCCM Eye Critical Care podcast is sponsored by Hospira Incorporated, the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio, which includes Presidex Dexmedetomidine Hydrochloride Injection. Through its broad, integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today I'm speaking with Alyssa Majesco, MD, about her article published in the August Critical Connections, which discusses the importance of training fellows in palliative care and the use of effective communication. Dr. Majesco is an assistant professor of medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. She has clinical appointments in both critical care and palliative care, with board certification in internal medicine, critical care, and board eligibility in palliative care. This is, uh, it's, it's really, actually really cool to be able to talk to you um, I realized that we have actually a tremendous amount, I think, in common. I thought it would be really interesting to hear your, your background, your training, and what got you interested in uh, kind of combining palliative care and ICU care.
2: Okay. I started my training in internal medicine, then found my way to critical care. And really during my critical care training was when I recognized the need for more training in palliative care, and more palliative care involvement in the intensive care unit. Particularly when I was on our liver transplant service, I really felt uh, that patients and families were struggling with a lot of decisions and hadn't really thought about any of the, the consequences of the decisions that they were making, despite being sometimes in the intensive care unit multiple times, having had prolonged hospitalizations, and really were not prepared to make any decisions around the end of life. And it was very stressful for the families and stressful for the staff. I just felt like we could be doing more to be proactive and working with with patients and family members throughout their critical illness to help them make decisions and to understand the decisions that they may be faced with in the future. And a lot of this really boils down to the fact that surrogates were the decision makers for patients and they never had conversations about where this illness would go and what they would want in the event that that something was not reversible and family members were kind of left holding the bag and were very uncomfortable. And and we in the ICU struggled a lot with trying to figure out, you know, what what the patients would have wanted, helping the family members to – come to an ability to make decisions, and it seemed like there was a better way, and so, so that really sparked my interest in palliative care.
1: Yeah, I find that the you know, the ICU seems to be this very high-tech, very aggressive place where those discussions really even don't take place. I think this is the source of uh, my frustration, it sounds like yours as well, that no one even thinks to talk about what are the implications of what we are doing now for the future and what are the possible outcomes.
2: Right. It seems as though in the scenario of the ICU, patients fall into sort of the ocean and and just wind up going along as the waves carry them. They come in, you know, from the emergency room and the emergency room intubates the patient and maybe sends them to the ICU and they get to the ICU and the Team is busy stabilizing them and calls the families to consent them for procedures. And the focus really is aggressively stabilizing the patient. which, You know, it's the primary role. Of the ICU is really to, to stabilize these patients. But when the dust settles, I think that often we fail to go back and and then talk to the families and sit down about what has actually transpired and what the implications of this are and what we as a team are looking for. And oftentimes. Days later, after things have progressed and multiple organ systems have failed, then we go back to the family and try to have those conversations, but we miss a valuable point when we could have had them be part of the process earlier on.
1: Yeah, I like your analogy of the ocean. I I often refer to it as uh, the machine. The machine just keeps grinding away, and no one thinks to say, is the machine going in the right direction? But I I think I like the ocean even better. So where do you see and how do you see the integration of palliative care? Concepts in intensive care medicine?
2: Well, there are a lot of different ways that palliative care can be a part of the intensive care unit. I think a lot of that depends on the resources of the institution and the ability of the palliative care department at your institution to be able to provide staffing because, you know, one of the limitations, of course, is. Right now there are fewer palliative care trained physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners than there probably are needed. You know, in, in the best world where you have a palliative care that is fully staffed, we at Emory try to do rounds with the intensivist on a daily basis. So the palliative care team checks in with each of the intensive care units and tries to identify patients each day that may benefit from palliative care consultation and then works with the ICU team. So the goal in this is to try to integrate palliative care when the prognosis is uncertain, not when basically patients are sort of at the end of the line. So palliative care can get involved and help families make decisions, help the ICU with communication and and be a part of the process. So if the patient does get better then, you know, they've helped maintain good communication and if the patient doesn't do well, then they've already been a part of the process and decision-making, so it isn't such an abrupt transition between restorative care, you know, to end-of-life care. So one of the roles, I think, for palliative care and intensive care is if you have a team that's capable, is really trying to integrate the two teams and try to get better communication with the team so both can work together uh, in the intensive care unit early. The other thing that I think palliative care can be, useful for is helping to educate the staff and physicians about some improved ways to communicate with families and helping to have an empathetic environment and really trying to give people principles of palliative care. So, you know, with the scarce resources of palliative care physicians and staff is to try to empower some of the ICU docs to improve their, their skills in palliative care and, and spread that message to to the ICU staff because the ICU staff and the ICU physicians are there 24-7 and have lots of contacts with the patient and family members outside of formal family meetings. So I think another important role of palliative care is really to get the ICU team better educated and able to handle some of the things that that palliative care is, is doing right now. So spreading the word of palliative care and getting people more comfortable with it
1: yeah the uh, you know it, it, it reminds me of the kind of the concept of primary versus secondary or specialized palliative care. So it sounds like you're talking about um, educating all the practitioners in the ICU to practice the basics of palliative care and integrate them into their intensive care medicine. And then perhaps there are other roles for palliative care specialists, I guess if they exist at, at your institution, which um, not all institutions have that, uh, that benefit but if they exist, uh, uh, having consultative uh, means as well. How do you find the acceptance of palliative care uh, across units at at Emory or in in the units uh, that you practice?
2: I think that the acceptance has gotten a lot better with the increased presence. So I think it's actually one of those things that the more time we've spent with the intensivists, the more comfortable people have become with our role. And so I think there was probably, you know, a couple of years ago that outdated idea that you really only call palliative care when the patient was going to die and there was nothing else you can do. And I think that through the past two years, and I've just been here one year, but through the time I've been here, uh, the ICU doctors are getting a lot better at identifying cases that are going to be complex, that may or may not have a good outcome and that they feel may benefit from palliative care. And I think that there's a lot of buy-in because palliative care can spend some additional time in tracking down family members and having meetings. And and so I think that the intensivists really see the value in what palliative care can do in terms of having meetings and talking with the family members. And they recognize that our objective really isn't to – you know, to push an objective, our our presence there is to try to really come up with what the patient would want and what the family would want and making sure that we're being consistent with those goals, whatever they may be. So I think that, you know, having said that, that I think that the surgical units are probably a little tougher sell because they're probably the slower units to come around in terms of accepting palliative care, but uh, we've had... Really wonderful success, and I think it's just once the surgeons and folks understand that our goal of being there is not to push an agenda; it's just to open lines of communication and really try to make sure that we're we're doing what the patient and families want. I think that that that's been very helpful. And sometimes the surgeons are surprised at how supportive we are for aggressive um, treatments and. We actually have been consulted on some cardiac surgery patients prior to surgeries that are very high risk to help uh, the family and patient understand the complex decision making going into this, anticipate the possible outcomes which may, you know, may not be good, and and have them think through what they would like to do if if these things occur, and I think it's been really helpful. Um, especially getting involved early with the surgical cases. And and most of those cases actually went very well where the patients had their surgery and recovered wonderfully. But the surgeons really appreciated having us there to have those kinds of conversations preoperatively. So there aren't any surprises for the families, you know, if, you know, things don't go as expected.
1: Sure. Yeah, as a surgeon and practicing in a surgical ICU, I, I certainly sense the same sort of resistance. It's amazing, though, especially early on, how well one can manage the expectations if things do not go as well postoperatively, And if folks are aware of those potential outcomes, it, it makes that uh, process a lot easier. I think palliative care, uh, I know there's a lot of controversy about what what to call palliative care, but uh, it still seems to have a somewhat of a reputation of care at the end or giving up hope, uh, which is still a big a big barrier to overcome.
2: The name is so complicated, and I have to say even in our field, the controversy about what to call ourselves as a service is very challenging, yeah. and I find that either patients don't know what palliative care means, so When I say that I'm from the service, I get a lot of blank stares and questions, what? (laughs) So people don't either know what we are or they do have this connotation that palliative care is synonymous with hospice, which we, you know, try to reinforce that we're not the same as hospice. But the name carries a lot of weight and a lot of misconceptions, and I think if we can get past that, they'll realize what, you know, what what we're actually there for. But, yeah, I, I agree that it's... Challenging. I wish there was a perfect name for our service.
1: Yeah, we've we've tossed that a bit around at Jefferson as well. Now, are are you both rounding in the intensive care unit and doing palliative care consultation?
2: Right. So I actually am a half-time intensive care physician and a half-time palliative care physician. So one week I will be an intensivist, and the next week I will be a palliative care consultant. Which. uh, can be confusing.
1: (laughs) And are you doing um, palliative care consults just in the ICU or both inside and outside of the ICU?
2: No, I do palliative care consults on the floor and in the intensive care unit, so I get to see the broad range of palliative care issues. Uh, A lot of, since the intensive care docs know me, I wind up doing a lot of work with them in the intensive care unit, but I, I also patients on the
1: floor as well. So I know one of your uh, big areas of um, interest is really educational training in both uh, communication and and also skill training and, and empathy, and certainly those are two different concepts but, but related. I was hoping maybe you could elaborate on those areas um, and your thoughts about how we can go about especially teaching or training in empathy.
2: I think that communication is one of those things that a lot of physicians really just feel that some people are great communicators and, and some people aren't, and that, you know, as physicians, because we are interacting with people all day, that you know, we just feel that we have good communication skills and good people skills. But actually, I you know, a lot of studies have shown that physicians tend to speak most of the time during family meetings, and they really miss. Uh, signs of distress from family members when they're giving emotional news and really are giving facts uh, that may be too complex for the family members and kind of just miss the signs of distress. So there's a lot of data out there showing that physicians could probably do better with uh, conveying bad news and communicating with family members. So one of the barriers, I would say, is that trying to convince us as a profession that, that we need some additional training in communication, and that um, communication is actually a skill and it's something that can be taught and learned, and everyone can improve their communication skills, but maybe not just through practice alone, but but through some structured training. I think there's just a lot more literature coming out on communication and teaching communication that hopefully will get more buy-in in medical schools and residency and fellowship training. For example, my medical school was very proactive in teaching uh, communication to the medical students with a lot of standardized patients and, and witness um, types of interactions, but not all medical schools do those kinds of things, so we started early on with a higher level of comfort, I think, with learning communication and being watched while we're communicating. So some of it's just a little bit of comfort. And then I think, you know, training residents and fellows, I received training during my that was valuable during my intensive care fellowship where we actually had a formalized structured communication course, which was a three-day course um, similar to OncoTalk, which was given to oncologists in teaching them how to give bad news, and having structure and and feedback about how you lead family meetings and how you give bad news and things that you can do to improve your Ability to give bad news and ways to attend to emotion and, and what to do if you kind of hit a roadblock. Sitting down and practicing and having someone give you constructive feedback and then re-practicing, I think, was really valuable. And it's something that I would like to integrate into more more training programs just to really some structured types of ways to teach communications that we can disseminate because I think it really helps to have a toolbox and to have a skill set that when you find yourself in a really difficult situation you can go back to some of the skills that you learn and try to you know try to use those skills. So I think that there are a lot of concrete things that physicians can learn to improve their communication. I think sometimes people find surprising.
1: Looking around to many of us is not a surprise at all, but uh, yeah, as, as you point out, a lot of people feel that they're uh, born natural communicators, but it really is a skill, just like uh, I think as you mentioned in, in your article, uh, a skill like any other procedure or uh, intervention that we learn in medicine that needs to be uh, honed and practiced and feedback given, as you, as you point out.
2: Right. I think one of the things that was instilled in me pretty early in my medical training was that, you know, a family meeting or um, going to talk to a patient about code status or something like that is like a procedure. And, you know, no one would ask you as an intern to go into the room and do a central line without making sure that you were competent and that someone was watching you and supervising you and that you were able to perform this procedure safely for the patient. But I find that you know we as physicians ask our trainees to go and get the code status or have a conversation about something, and you know, and we're not exactly sure what what they're doing and how they're having the conversation and if they're competent in having those conversations. So I think part of the training starts you know with us as attendings of making sure that. We're not, you know, putting our trainees into a situation that may not be best for them, and, and that is really putting our our patients and family at emotional risk and harm for, you know, ha- having them maybe say something that was inappropriate, or, or you know, we don't know what they say if we just send them in on their own. So sure. I think that that's something that pretty much everyone can do is to make sure that that you're working with your trainees and and going with them and participating with them in conversations.
1: It's an ongoing process. I and mean, one of the things that really frustrates me is how we can have all these pretty well-designed courses in the first two years of medical school, and then they go out into the wards, into the offices, and so much of it can be completely unlearned by not the greatest role models. So it's really quite an ongoing effort.
2: I think that was, you know, that article that had come out in the New York Times about doctors learning empathy which really made it into the lay press that was based on the empathy training article and Journal of Internal Medicine that really talks about the fact that it's true that, you know, in medical school, medical students come to school with the goal of helping people and having empathy and and human interaction as really being their primary reason for getting Interested in medicine, and that over time over the medical training there's the decline in empathy that residents have, and you know it's it seems to be something that erodes during training rather than improved and you know I guess that may be you know part of the role modeling that you know we have to rem- remind ourselves to you know to keep emphasizing that empathy and communication are just as important as a lot of the other medical facts and skills that we're teaching. But, it, you know, that article was pretty specific that, you know, the residents really felt that their MC had declined um, as their training had advanced. So it's kind of an interesting I, – I think we all kind of see that in in practice, but it's interesting that they, they
1: captured that. Yeah, one of the um – Earlier uh, articles, I think, in uh, academic medicine came out of Jefferson. The you others, know, there's this Jefferson Empathy Scale. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple people here that have this huge database of medical students coming through the the medical college, and they, they looked at uh, people going through first two years, and their empathy basically remained the same. And then it, it, like, it really took a dive during the third year and came up maybe a little bit in the fourth year. But I there hasn't been a whole lot of what happens during residency, but it really, it certainly scares me. What have you learned about teaching epithere? How, how do we really or can we really teach that skill or approach?
2: Well, you know, the article I read that was a little bit different. They used some specific measures of facial expressions and so forth as one way to, you know, to have people be more observant of those types of reactions. The one thing that I had learned, which was a mnemonic called Nurse is basically a way to to deal with emotional responses from patients. So it, it basically has you kind of run through why someone's having this emotional response. So when someone asks you a question that seems kind of inappropriate or, you know, why is this happening? And rather than just brushing it off, you know, try to name an emotion. You know, I can see that you're very upset. And sometimes that's enough to really, really get people to open up. And then um, the U in nurse is understanding. So, you know, just I can't imagine what it's like for you to see your dad this way. R is respecting. So sometimes these can be nonverbal responses, you know, just reaching out and touching a family member. You know, sometimes I can... When people ask a lot of questions in the ICU, it really shows that you're caring about your mom, and I I respect all these questions that you're asking, and these are wonderful questions to ask, and S is for support, you know, just making sure that you're letting the family members know that I'm going to see you again tomorrow. We're going to continue to talk about this. I know I've given you a lot of bad news, but I'm going to be around later today if you want to talk again, and then, you know, sometimes it's... Exploring the emotion more, which is the final E in nurse. So, this has been a lot of information for you. You know, what are you thinking? And just kind of giving people some open-ended questions and and really allowing them to to respond. So, you know, I think part of it is is communication, and part of it is just recognizing when you are giving people emotionally charged information, and the response that they're giving you isn't a question that you can answer with more facts. It's, It's time to, you know, put the brakes and then attend to what's behind that question. And a lot of times I think when we circle in conversations with family members where we feel as though we're, you know, keep going back to the same thing again in the conversation, it's just that we haven't really fully stopped and addressed the emotion behind it. And so, you know, a lot of times, until you really clear the emotion or make sure that people are out of that high anxiety state, you know, you can't actually get to the decision making. So that's one of the the things that I like to teach my um, residents and fellows is to, you know, to use that that mnemonic and in, in addressing
1: emotions. I mean, that's great. Um, I've not actually specifically heard of that mnemonic, but it certainly makes a lot of uh, a lot of sense and easy. Much easier to teach. I like that a lot.
2: Right. I actually, I feel like working with somebody that, that also teaches and is interested in communication helps you because there are a lot of, you know, phrases and things that you can use kind of when you get yourself in trouble or mnemonics, and because I, I think that a lot of times when I've been in meetings with residents or fellows, you know, they hit something and they panic, and so the family members starts yelling at them and, you can see them panic, and so <laughs> mm-hmm. I, that's why I also feel like making sure faculty and attendings and you know so forth that we're with the residents when they're doing these meetings is so important because you don't want them to just panic when someone gets emotional. You want to make sure that you know you're attending to them and and then moving forward when
1: they're ready. You certainly have uh, some wonderful ideas, and uh, it's really been wonderful talking to you. Certainly, look forward to hearing more about all your work at Emory. This concludes another edition of the I Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org/iCriticalCare for more episodes, or search SCCM on iTunes for the I Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein.
0: Hospira Incorporated is the world's leading provider of injectable drugs and infusion technologies. Hospira has an anesthesia and critical care portfolio which includes Presidex, dexmedetomidine, hydrochloride injection. Through its broad integrated portfolio, Hospira is uniquely positioned to advance wellness by improving patient and caregiver safety while reducing health care costs. You can find us at www.hospira.com. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The Eye Critical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.